So my guest today is Ole Martin Mohn. Ole Martin is a research fellow in philosophy at the University of Oslo. He works on how to think straight about thorny issues and applied ethics. He is the principal investigator of the What Should Not Be Bought and Sold project, which is being funded by the Research Council of Norway. In the past, he has written articles about the ethics of prostitution, the desirability of cryonics, the problem of wild animal suffering, and the case for philosophical hedonism. Along with his collaborator, Axel Brennan Steri, he runs a podcast in Norwegian called Moralistne, and he regularly discusses moral issues behind the news on Norwegian national radio. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Okay, so I invited you on the show today to discuss what's probably going to be a controversial topic, namely the anti-tech philosophy of Ted Kaczynski, uh, also known as the Unabomber. So for those of you who aren't aware... Ted Kaczynski is a convicted terrorist. Between 1978 and 1995, he handcrafted mail bombs that he sent to a variety of people that worked in academia and technology across the U.S. He killed three people and maimed 24 others. He was arrested in 1996 and pled guilty to a range of offenses in 1998, and he is currently serving eight consecutive life sentences. Now, prior to his bombing campaign, Kaczynski was a promising academic mathematician, he abandoned his career in academia to live a kind of neo-primitive lifestyle in the woods of Montana. From there, in addition to his bombing campaign, he wrote a manifesto called Industrial Society and Its Future. And this manifesto was published at the height of his infamy in the Washington Post and the New York Times. And it was actually largely through the publication of this that he was caught. The manifesto sets out a series of arguments against technological modernity and makes the case for the violent overthrow of industrial society. Kaczynski has since expanded on the arguments from the manifesto in a series of letters and exchanges that were collected and published by the philosopher David Scribina, and also in a more recent self-authored monograph called Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How. Now, our conversation is going to be focused on Kaczynski's arguments and the substance of those arguments, which you have recently critiqued in an article called The Unabomber's Ethics, which is published in the journal Bioethics. And as I say, I want this conversation to be as substantive as possible, focusing on the merits of those arguments in and of themselves. But I think before we do that, we probably need to address the elephant in the room, which is, you know, should we even be talking about Kaczynski and his arguments? Is there a danger that in doing so, we legitimize his violence and revolutionary tactics? And is it not just better to ignore them? Well, it might be better to ignore, ignore them, um, but I'm, I'm not so sure about that in the case, in the case of Kaczynski. Now, I think there's always a danger in discussing ideas that are spread or sought spread by means of violence because we don't we don't want to make violence an effective ways to get get ideas across. And I think some ideas should not be discussed, like, you know, the Norwegian terrorist Anders Breivik, for example, he he wrote a very lengthy manifesto. Uh, and that manifesto is, on the one hand, intellectually worthless. And on the other hand, his ideas aren't really discussed anywhere. It doesn't have any any influence. But in the case of Gizinski, it's it's a bit different. Uh, on the one hand, his ideas are rather interesting, as I, I think we'll, we'll get back to. And the other is that he's already getting quite a lot of attention. There's somewhat of a cult following uh, of Kaczynski, especially online, which is paradoxical in some ways. Uh, but he, he has also gotten his ideas spread to a larger audience with a series called The Manhunt Unabomber, which has been on Netflix for a while and which I believe won a few prizes, which is a, is a, is a series in eight parts uh, uh, about, his, about his views. So I, I think in, in, in his case, what was the case before I, I wrote this article, is that his ideas were spread to quite a lot of people. He had some followers, but no one explained why he was wrong. And I think that's like the worst state you can be in when it comes to ideas that can motivate violence, that they are out there, that they're spread, but no one really sits down and explains to people why why they're problematic. Yeah, and I think, as I mentioned, you know, his ideas have some traction in academic circles as well. So that we have that uh, philosopher, David Scribino, who's written that book with him or collected and edited some papers with him. And there's also another paper which I came across recently in the Robot Ethics Collection by Patrick Lynn et al., which has a paper which is quite positive about the philosophy of... Ted Kaczynski. So it's it's worth, I think, challenging and pushing back against that positive reception that's out there so far. You know, and, the, and the, there's also, I think, a more general point here about about how about whether we should discuss ideas that motivate terrorism, uh, because 
Uh, on the one hand, it's very easy either just to pathologize them, say that they're crazy, or to say that they're evil or that they're both, and to believe that that settles it and that that gives us reason not to discuss these ideas further. But I, I think that even though people might be both crazy and evil, I think ideas matter quite a bit. I think people are are motivated to commit acts of terrorism to quite some extent because of ideas. And since it is, it's it's uh, very problematic that we don't actually sit down with 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 uh, what terrorists write or those who motivate terrorists, terrorists write and explain what is problematic. And actually, one of the things that 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 prompted me to start reading Kaczynski was an article by Greenwood in The Atlantic, which is called What ISIS Really Wants, uh, which is an intellectual analysis. It's not very philosophical, but it's theological and cultural of what ISIS wants, the Islamic State. Uh, and I think it's really useful that we try to get, you know, under the skin of the ideas uh, promoted by terrorists. Because uh, what if we could, what if we could actually discourage terrorism by means of argument? What if we can show ter- prospective terrorists that we we see their arguments, we see where they're coming from, but we think they're wrong? In most parts of society, that's that's how we try to deal with people who disagree with us. And I think that's something that philosophers should also consider consider doing. Yeah, I mean, I agree very much with that idea myself, but there is kind of a, a resistance to it in some circles. I mean, even in the debate about ISIS, let's say, there's a tendency amongst a lot of social scientists to argue that it's not really the ideas that matter here, it's some broader set of social circumstances. And actually engaging with the ideas is somewhat pointless because people don't change their opinions or views based on rational argumentation. So there's a there's a kind of frisson or element of anti-rationalism I find in, in the discussion of dangerous ideas. I don't know if you've had a thought about that. Well, I, I think that's the case. Of course, it's a psychological and sociological question about, you know, what it, what is it actually that motivates terrorism? And I don't know. I don't know, you know, what I don't know if you can put a percentage on how much one factor contributes to another. But at least these are, uh, although I don't know in the case of ISIS, in the case of Kaczynski, there's uh, an intellectual movement. People are persuaded by his ideas, or so it seems. Uh, he's a rather like intellectual type himself, and it would be strange if the arguments were irrelevant for the to the conclusion. So I, I think with with in in many cases at least, it's it's hard to see why a philosophical criticism would would encourage terrorists. Uh, it's uh, if if there are papers out that just show why someone is wrong, why perhaps they commit very elementary philosophical mistakes. It's hard to see why that should encourage people to follow those ideas. Rather, it seems it should discourage them. Yeah, that's fair enough. And as you point out, Kaczynski might be a special case to some extent in that he is kind of deliberately intellectualizing his movement or his call for revolution. Um, Yes. Although that's actually probably a common enough feature of, of many revolutionaries. But let's not get too bogged down in this initial issue um, I have a slightly maybe negative interpretation of academics who engage with his arguments, but I think it'll make more sense if I, and not you specifically, but people who've engaged positively with his arguments. Um, mm-hmm. But I might get back to that at the end of the conversation because it might make more sense at that point in time. Right. So let's then go into the, the kind of the meat of the uh, issue and look at his arguments against industrial society. Now, in your paper, you highlight uh, several kind of distinctive threads of argument that run through his writings, both the 1995 Manifesto and his more recent book. Now, I identified five such arguments, and you might disagree with this reading or interpretation of it, but let me just mention a couple of them and we can discuss some of the reasoning underlying them. So, I mean, one of the first things that I came across was this idea of of an evolutionary mismatch argument. So this, this sense that... Uh, modern technological society is a bad fit for the kind of beings that we are. Is that? Could you maybe you could expand on that argument a bit? Well, yeah. Well, well. I, at least you know the the uh, this is at least the first argument that I consider in in my my paper, which is that we we live under conditions that are very different from the conditions under which we evolved to thrive. Uh, so he thinks that that there, there's a mismatch between human nature and evolved society and or or the involved evolved technological civilization and as we might get back to you know this is an idea 
that also that quite a lot of promoters of human enhancement believe in. Uh, they believe that we are, in a sense, unfit for the future. But surely, but certainly this is like one of the foundational premises, that we are beings that evolved to live in a certain context. And now due to technology, the context has radically changed. And that has you know, important implications for our ability to thrive and to flourish uh, now that we are in a very different world from the one in which we evolved. I mean, is there a clear sense in Kaczynski's writings of like, uh, what he thinks the ideal environment would be. I mean, is it like a hunter-gatherer time kind of lifestyle is what he thinks we are set up to thrive in? It, it, it's a bit unclear. Uh, you know, w w when, he aim, when he discusses what kind of society we should try to create, you know, he says that we should have very limited technologies. You know, he will allow for blacksmiths and water wheels, but nothing more complicated than that. But it's very hard to see like where you should, where he draws the line. Uh, I don't think, uh, on his view, there's some things that are technological and those are bad, and some things are untechnological and those are not bad. I think it's it's rather uh, a function of where we where we humans are will be able to to strive. And 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 he says something, you know, about what he thinks are those conditions, and he thinks it's, thinks it's really important that we are able to struggle for our own lives. So. Uh, you know, if we if we go hunt or we even plow a field, presumably, you know, we struggle, and through that struggle, we we can live a meaningful life. But if we don't have to struggle anymore, if there's if there's nothing we we have to use our powers to, if if we don't have to use our physical and mental powers in order to survive, then we live in a society uh, where what fundamentally gives you know life meaning or makes life good. Uh, no longer exists. Yeah, I suppose my, I was kind of getting at, like, is he like an evolutionary psychologist saying that, you know, we're built for the African savanna about 100,000 years ago, and now we're in a very different environment, so we can't thrive. It seems like he's not saying that. He's saying that it's it's more really, and this is in the title of his original manifesto, it's more really modern industrial society that we're not fit for. Well, well, but but he could say that with modern industrial society, we're even further uh, removed away from where we evolved to thrive. So we've just gotten further and further away. And this then is the last step. And that's the one he most criticizes because of the like enormous changes to society. I don't know if there's, you know, I, I guess it's possible to interpret Kaczynski as holding the view that, you know, happiness, for example, is what's good. We just can't be happy in the society, though I suspect that that's not exactly his view. I think he, he seems to hold a somewhat romantic view where he thinks the struggle is good in and of itself. And that it's by realizing struggle that 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 a life or, or a civilization is good. Yeah, so this kind of hints at another line of argument that I identified, um, which is this notion that one reason why our current lives in industrial society lack meaning is because we engage in a lot of surrogate activities instead of these more meaningful uh, acts of struggle at least that's my interpretation of it maybe you could um expand on that idea a bit more could maybe, could you have an example of somebody who's engaging in a surrogate activity and who is according to kaczynski not living a meaningful life yeah well in in, in kaczynski's view a surrogate activity is an activity that doesn't aim at satisfying a real need but that that it aims at fulfillment. So if you just create a goal for yourself and you think, oh, I have to do this. I have to build this new garage, for example, to have my car in it. And you don't really need that. And you're, you, know, you don't need it to protect your car. It, then you've made an artificial goal. And, you've, so you, and then you engage in what Kaczynski calls the power process. The power process is the process of going through the, or going through the effort of having a goal and then struggling to reach the goal and then attaining the goal. And it's interesting, you know, when he gives examples of surrogate activities, uh, one of those that, those that he mentions is scientific research. So he writes in his manifesto that with possible rare exceptions, scientists' motive is neither curiosity nor a desire to benefit humanity, but the need to go through the power process, to have a goal, a scientific problem to solve, to make an effort, research, and to attain the goal, solution to the problem. Science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of their their work the work itself, and it's interesting when he's when he's listing uh, uh, sciences that are are useless. He actually mentions archaeology and linguistics as as the, these most obvious examples of of things that uh, of sciences that scientists 
use the surrogate activities, but that don't have any real value. And it, that's a very paradoxical choice, I think, of sciences, because uh, archaeology should be extremely important for, to Kaczynski, given that he wants to return to many of the societies that archaeologists study. And interestingly, when it comes to linguistics, that's actually, to quite some extent, the, the science that got him convicted. Uh, because he, you know, through forensic linguistics, uh, they were able to spot similarities in his writing, uh, in the manifesto, in his earlier writing. Uh, so that's what, what got him convicted. So it, 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 there's something very strange about the about the examples he gives of like surrogate sciences. But 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 yeah, irrespective of what is a surrogate activity and what is not, his idea is that we humans, to a, to a larger and larger extent, engage in surrogate activities such that so that life appears meaningful to us, even though we actually don't have any real reasons to use our mental and physical efforts. We don't need that in order to live. Yeah, so, so activities that engage with you know, real needs then are the ones that provide meaning. But is, is a real need for him basically like a, a biological need, a survival-related need? Is that the correct interpretation of it? I, I, I think it probably has to mean that, because if you, if, if you, if you accept you know, fundamentally psychological needs, uh, so if you want to satisfy curiosity, for example, it becomes very hard to draw a line between what's a surrogate activity and what is not. So I, I think I think on his view, there there would need to be, uh, there could be, I, I think it would allow for an activity to be somewhat removed from, from, you know, causally removed from satisfying biological needs. So if you try to find out, you know, how how can you go hunting? What's the best strategy that I think would be would be very, you know, accepted on his view. But there has to be some biological need there that you that you struggle that, that you struggle towards. And I, I guess then it's interesting if you like if, you know, in, in, we think of biological research, you know, uh, at the time or biotechnological research where we try to, you know, ex- let's say, extend human health span and human lifespan. I wonder if you would view that as a surrogate activity or if that would actually qualify as, as you know, something that could actually give real fulfillment because it struggles to maintain our, 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 our physical health. Yeah, I guess it's interesting there because it depends to some extent on whether he has a very fixed view of what a human being should be and whether he's willing to kind of countenance or tolerate these enhancing evolutions. I mean, it seems very clear from his work that he's opposed to a lot of biotechnological innovation. So it seems that he would Certainly. be opposed to that, but I guess there is this tension within his view then, uh, which is an interesting point. I mean, to me as well, another thing that's interesting about this argument is a few things. It's not like massively outlandish insofar as, you know, there are lots of people who think that living a kind of self-sufficient lifestyle where you're tending to your basic needs for food, clothes, and shelter all by yourself is somehow meaningful existence and is more meaningful than the kinds of lives we live in the rat race. So, you know, all these kinds of stories about people getting away from working life and recovering this kind of self-sufficient lifestyle. So it's it's not that unusual. But the other thing is that it is kind of unusual in another sense that it kind of bucks the trend of long-standing philosophical views, which are that, you know, discovering the truth is a good thing. And so scientific activity is a good thing. It's one of the things that is most meaningful that we can do is to find out the truth about the world around us. And yet he seems to resist that because he thinks it's more artificial and focused on need fulfillment, or say wish fulfillment or goal fulfillment and not on, on a real need. So it's it's in tension with longstanding traditions in philosophy. Yeah, I, though he, I, I guess he, you know, I, I guess it it might be consistent with Kaczynski's view to think that okay, if you if you strive for truth, that's that could be maybe a worthy goal. But a lot of scientists just do this in order to reach fulfillment. They don't actually need to know this truth. There's no uh, no real need for it. But I, I think it's it's consistent with his you know it, it's consistent with his view that there could be such scientific research which is done for noble purposes. He just thinks that a lot of science is done just for fulfillment, and that it's also very you know, that we take on a lot of risks by letting science continue. So, you know, since he's very anti-technological, he thinks that just for the mere satisfaction of the emotional needs of scientists, we are like racing off the cliff uh, by by pushing science and then technology further and further. Yeah, maybe just one other point that I had about this was that I think it's also the notion that our lives should focus on real needs, which from what we've been saying here is kind of reduced to biological needs is also, I think, in tension with long-standing philosophical views, which is that 
those those are the kinds of needs that are the least meaningful. And actually, if we spent all our lives just trying to survive, that wouldn't be a very flourishing kind of existence. I mean, just to mention one example of this, Hannah Arendt in her book, The Human Condition, which actually has you know similar ideas in it to Kaczynski, a kind of critique of modernism and automation in the workplace and so forth. She would view labor, which is activity that's focusing on biological need, as the least human and the least meaningful kind of activity. And yet Kaczynski seems to suggest that that is the most meaningful kind of activity. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, let, let's move on to some of the other arguments. Um, so another one is this helplessness argument, which has to do with the notion that technological, technological complexity means that we cannot control our lives. Um, this is actually, I think, a plausible enough argument. So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, well, yeah, he, he argues, if I'm, I can read from the, from the, the, the manifesto again, he, he, he writes, the primitive man threatened by a fierce animal or by hunger can fight in self-defense or travel in search of food. The modern individual, on the other hand, is threatened by many things against which he is helpless. Nuclear accidents, carcinogens in food, environmental pollution, wars, increasing taxes, invasion of its privacy, large organizations, nationwide social or economic phenomena that may disrupt his way of life. Uh, so he, he thinks that one of the aspects of modernity then is that is that there are so many, many forces outside of our control, which control our lives, uh, in which hands our fate lies, and that 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 for that reason we're we're helpless in 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 facing larger and larger systems with more and more technology technology that we and the people around us cannot understand and therefore also cannot control. Yeah, and maybe just to give an illustration as to why I think this is not an implausible idea. If you take a problem like climate change, you know, it's it's something that the individual is relatively powerless to correct or fix. It requires a collective solution and but due to the complexity of society and the different interests or tensions that are at play in you know political negotiations or international relations it's very very hard for any one individual to make a difference obviously it's actually pretty much impossible so there is that sense i think of helplessness that it will be intuitive to many people about you know modern society yeah and of course there's helplessness in the case of climate change but there's also helplessness in like just cell phones for example or other like small scale technologies around us what you know, if they should be here or not, is not up to us because they they just evolve. They 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 exist around us. They shape our lives. So everywhere around us, there are forces beyond our control. And so then he argues that, and this is much more of a problem in today's society than it was, you know, in pre-industrial and in industrial societies. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is a good point at which to raise this, but it's something we're going to talk about anyway, which is just that, as you point out in your critique, there are lots of features of pre-industrial society that um, were, you know, not, sorry, lots of threats in pre-industrial society that we are helpless in the face of as well. I mm-hmm. guess Kaczynski has Definitely. kind of a, a different attitude towards the two things, which I think we'll come back to because that's sort of the main critique that you have of his paper. Yes, yes, let's return to that. So let's move on to another kind of argument then which is this notion that technology is unstoppable. I mean, this isn't maybe an article, or sorry, this isn't maybe an argument in itself, but it's just a, a claim about the way in which technological society develops, which is that it's this kind of constant spiral towards a more and more technologized civilization, that one technology begets a need for a new kind, for other kinds of technologies. And it's part of this uh, uncontrollability of modern life as well. So maybe you could expand on that idea. Yeah, he, he uses the example of, of cars. Uh, you know, initially, it seems like a very good idea to acquire a car. And those who acquire cars, they benefit from having a car. Uh, and then, but then we create roads, we, we build our cities around cars. And then, then after a few years, you need a car in order to get around. Uh, and because things are so far apart, and there's no way place for pedestrians but so 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 his his claim is that it always seems to be a very good idea to start using a technology so um, individuals will always pursue newer faster better technologies but there are negative externalities so negative effects from technology and those are socialized they're spread out over you know society as a whole so uh, so he, he has the, this this argument, which is not so much uh, specified in the manifesto, but in his later book, the the anti tech revolution. Uh, he argues that it's also the case that those who use technologies 
and you are very fast in using technologies will tend to gain an upper hand. So he argued, for example, that those who use fossil fuels, they will tend to, they all else equal at least, they will benefit more than those who don't use so, so many fossil fuels, because those who don't use so many fossil fuels will need to spend their resources on less efficient means of uh, of transportation, for example. So, so we're always running forward, accepting uh, newer and newer technologies. And this, he thinks, is very, very, uh, this is, is unstoppable uh, for two reasons. One reason is like the epistemic reason, which is that we just don't, we can't know what the implications will be of the technologies that we accept today. But even if we knew, it would be really, really hard for us to, to control the future because we there are so many people who have so many incentives to use technologies, even though, you know, if 10 or 15 or 20 years down the line, this can have really catastrophic consequences for us. So he thinks we're rushing ahead and it's really, really hard to stop the like, onslaught of technology. It strikes me that that argument is kind of like a tragedy of the common style argument that, yes, you know, it's individually rational for one person to take advantage of a particular technology like a car or fossil fuels, and that gives them an advantage. But once everybody starts using them, that advantage kind of erodes away and actually we end up in a worse state of affairs overall. That's clear enough from the example of the car in his manifesto, which is the sense that the car introduces some initial freedom for the driver, the person who uses it. But actually, in the end, you have an obligation to use the car. It's, there's no freedom anymore because you would be at such a disadvantage relative to the rest of society if you didn't make use of it. And you can see a similar logic playing out in other technologies like mobile phones or computers. That If you're not in the loop on those technologies, you're at a significant disadvantage. So it's not really optional anymore. It's a compulsion. Yes, exactly. And in a way, that kind of brings us nicely to the last argument of the, first, of the five that I identified anyway, which I called the domesticated animals argument, just to maybe highlight the, the analogy that he uses, which is that ultimately what technology does to us is that it turns us into programmed, sated, domesticated animals, and we completely lose our freedom and autonomy. Maybe, again, you could expand on that argument and his reasoning for it. Yeah, well, he, he, he thinks that, you know, if we pursue, uh, you know, the present course, if we just let technological civilization develop further, then either we will eradicate ourselves, as he, I think he believes is pretty plausible, or we will perhaps, that would be possibly, you know, better than, it's not clear even, I don't know how we would rank this, but either we, we eradicate ourselves, or we will be in a society that's very much like Brave New World, where everyone uh, everyone's physical needs are satisfied, where everyone's, you know, psychologically healthy, as he writes, uh, where everyone, he, he writes, has a wholesome hobby to keep him busy, and where people are given, like, treatment, uh, psychopharmacologically, for example, if they are dissatisfied. And he writes that these engineered human beings may be happy in such a society, but they almost certainly will not be free. They will have been reduced to the status of domesticated animals. So this is his view about, you know, what the future might have for us. He doesn't really argue for this view. He doesn't explain why uh, he thinks that it's only these two possible futures. But at least this is one of his claims that 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 these are the two like futures that we can that we can end up in unless we intervene in the development of technology. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the example of Brave New World because it is a, obviously a very similar dystopia that is sketched in that novel to the one that. Kaczynski seems to be describing and it's also again not an unusual dystopia there are many writers who have described something similar I mean there's something similar in the movie Wally -E, if people have seen that about you know people on these mobile chairs that feed them junk food and mindless entertainment and they become these sated domesticated animals completely under the thumb or control of technology and that's actually an argument that I've written about in some of my own work and this was a point that you make, and I just wanted to mention it here as well, which is that all five of these arguments that we've discussed, they're not unusual. They're not, like, they're not necessarily original to Kaczynski. He might express them in a particular way and use interesting metaphors or analogies that makes them more vivid. But the, the basic idea underlying a lot of them is not unfamiliar in the philosophy of technology. And just to give one example of this, and I'm sure they'll hate me drawing this similarity between their work and Kaczynski's work. But two of the authors that I've interviewed on this show before, Brett Frischman and Evan Selinger, in their book, Reengineering Humanity, 
they make a number of points that are very similar to what Kaczynski says about the tragedy of the commons when it comes to our choices to use technology, about the way in which technology is engineering us to lose our freedom and autonomy. So they're very similar claims in these books to what we find in Kaczynski. Uh, the, the, what I would like to, to add here, here, though, is that, you know, the by, you know, here, here we're following the like argumentative structure in my presentation of Kaczynski's argument in my paper. And he doesn't present these things, as, these arguments as like neatly and as structured and in this order in the manifesto, and neither does he in the anti-tech revolution. So this is my attempt at reconstructing the argument. So those who are like interested in going into more detail on the way he argues should like read the manifesto, industrial society and its future, and like not trust my my paper. Uh, I hope my paper is you know faithful to his to his argument, but I uh, but this very much follows the the steps in my own analysis or attempt at reconstructing his his view. Yeah, so I mean, this is a, maybe a charitable reconstruction of the arguments and it makes more sense and appeals to the philosophy of technology and ethics community more the way that you've constructed it than it would in Kaczynski's original manifesto and his later book. And in fact, that was something that I did want to just briefly mention, which is just mm -hmm. that if you read the original manifesto, there are a lot of points in, uh, that he makes in that you know, he spends a long time railing against leftists and uh, the yes. way in which their ideology is corrupting. And it's not that dissimilar to the kinds of arguments we see amongst the alt-right nowadays. And now you completely overlook those aspects of his manifesto in your summary. Uh, maybe you could just explain why you did that and whether you think that's the right thing to do. Well, I, 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 I made a choice about this because... My paper is about the Unabomber's ethics, so Ted Kaczynski's ethics. So I try to tease out his ethical theory. That's my aim in this paper. So he says a lot that I don't don't mention in my paper. So my paper is not an attempt at summarizing what he argues, either in the manifesto, neither in the manifesto nor in the anti-tech revolution, which is a monograph. I try to find out, you know, what are the steps in his argument, and and it was I, I do quotes you know, the sections from his discussion of leftism, but it's, uh, I didn't find anything, you know, I didn't find it necessary to summarize that whole discussion and the way that he views the the, the left in the, the early 90s when he, he wrote this. I don't see how that's necessary for his, for his argument. Do you think it is? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's a strategy you see in some of the people who are a little bit more defensive of his work. So Jay Galliott and his article in the Robot Ethics book about the Unabomber, mentions those aspects of the manifesto, but only to point out that they're not relevant to the substance of his arguments, and also criticizes another philosopher who has himself become a controversial figure, uh, Peter Ludlow, who wrote a blog post about Ted Kaczynski's arguments where he critiqued Kaczynski for this interpretation of the left. And Jay Galliott argued that it was a, a genetic fallacy or a, an unfair argument to make because it didn't really engage with the substance of Kaczynski's critique of industrial society. So, I mean, I, I think what you're doing is normal, is, is appropriate within you know academic philosophy because you want to see the main substance of the argument. And if the critique of leftism is not really relevant to the main substance of the argument, if it's an unnecessary distraction, maybe it's I think it's appropriate to leave it out, following and, a, pr a principle of charity. You know? Yeah, and, and I should also say that, of course, my aim here is not to be, you know, I, I'm not a Kaczynski scholar. I don't really think anyone should be a Kaczynski scholar. Uh, my, you know, I have philosophical interests that lie elsewhere. Uh, but I got interested interested in his ideas and in his argument. So I guess if someone writes a book about, about you know, Kaczynski's whole worldview, they should cover his views on leftism as well. Uh, but my aim here is to, to dig out his, his philosophy. And, and, and therefore, I, yeah, I... I chose, you know, if I were to engage with everything that he says, it would be a very, very long paper. And I, I, I don't think I'm interested in writing a paper like this. Yeah, that's, I think that's fair enough. But so far in this conversation, we have left out, I think, the big aspect of Kaczynski's arguments, the part that makes him maybe more distinctive from the rest of the philosophy of technology literature, which is that he only sees one possible solution to the problems of technological modernity, namely some kind of violent revolution. Maybe you could talk a bit about why he believes that and also what he envisages with this violent revolution. Well, yeah, well, he thinks what we have to achieve is a return to 
a pre-industrial society. And then there's the question of how we can get there. And of course, one way of getting there would be to just appeal to moderation, to think that to get some kind of some treaties, for example, that would make us roll back technology. But he thinks that that, that just isn't feasible. It's not going to happen. People will even if many share the goal that we should get back to pre-industrial living, uh, the minority who, who still believes the technology is good will thrive and will, will develop and will use those technologies. Uh, so he just thinks there is no peaceful way to get rid of, of modern technology. So therefore, he thinks that we need uh, a revolution, something like an anti-tech revolution. And he doesn't, especially in the manifesto, he doesn't really say much about this. Uh, he says that there should be a small committed minority who should be prepared to to take over. And if there's a crisis that happens worldwide, the anti-tech uh, terrorists, as we might call them, uh, should uh, step in. And he has some very, very vague formulations about how once after the U.S. economy is crippled, then, you know, the rest of the world will follow. And then the anti-tech revolutionaries should be there and should be be, be ready to take over the world and to, well, yeah, burn libraries and, you know, destroy technical books and presumably, you know, destroy all copies of Wikipedia and just start over again from, you know, blacksmiths and, 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 and the like. And of course, there's a question of whether he thinks this will actually work. I think there are reasons to believe that he actually doesn't think that it will work, but at least he sees this as the only option. You know, it's either eradication or brave new world, or we can attempt a revolution. And and I guess this is also then why you know a justification for why he is violent, why he sent mail bombs. You know, he thinks violence is is, is the way to way to do this because no other way will will succeed. Yeah, I mean, there's two things I want to say here before we continue. Just one is that, as I said, I think the if we take your reconstruction of his arguments to be fair, and that that's the core of his ethics, of his intellectual case against technology, is constituted by those arguments. As I say, they're not that dissimilar from the kinds of arguments one finds in the philosophy of technology anyway. What makes them different, different is, in a sense, the solution that he poses and his kind of radicalism. And this is one thing that makes me call into question if philosophers who try to rehabilitate his views or try to uh, in, offer some kind of mild endorsement of them is that I think that to me they're committing in their work a kind of Mott and Bailey fallacy so in the sense that they're they're trying to call out or use Kaczynski's name and his radicalism to attract attention to their arguments but then once you actually go into the details of them they retreat from the radical solution or conclusions that he draws from those arguments. Does that make sense? Or, I mean, do you yeah, have any yeah, view on that? I think that? I think that's a fair point. I think what's, if anything's original with Kaczynski, it is, you know, the violent conclusions that he draw from, draws from these. It, you know, that's what makes him, him specific. But then, of course, the question is, you know, how can he get from these premises that quite a lot of people will share to his violent conclusions? You know, why, why does he think this is a good solution because very, very few people accept these initial premises, you know, the uh, that we're in a mismatch, an evolutionary mismatch, that we're helpless, that we engage in surrogate activities, technology is virtually unstoppable, that we might up, you know, eradicating ourselves or ending up in brave new world. Quite a lot of people would accept those premises, at least to some extent. They would think that they are they are plausible, but they still wouldn't believe, you know, in violence means. So then, then an interesting question is why, how does he get from those premises to the violent conclusion? Yeah, exactly. And maybe let's go then into the, the main part of your critique of his work. So, I mean, as you say, I actually accept some of the premises of what he says, but I wouldn't draw out the same conclusions. And that then, it's interesting as to why I don't draw out those conclusions. And you think that one of the reasons why this, why people like me wouldn't draw those conclusions is that, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. You think that one of the issues with his work is that he has a very odd evaluative theory or evaluative philosophy underlying all of his arguments. So there's a kind of a hidden premise to his arguments that isn't properly stated. And once it's stated, the argument becomes much less plausible. So maybe you could outline what that hidden premise is. Yeah, uh, you know that, you know, as David Hume taught us, you know, to get to a normative conclusion, you always need normative premises. And the interesting thing with Kaczynski's work is that it seems very descriptive. You know, he tries to be scientific, 
so he never really discusses the normative premises uh, or the evaluative premises of, of his argument. But what I suggest in my paper is that it's actually like his evaluative theory that does a lot of the like the argumentative heavy lifting in, in his work. And I think that to see that, I think uh, like a first thing that one can notice when one one, one reads industrial society and, and its future is that he only discusses the the downsides of uh, technology. He doesn't discuss any of the upsides. He doesn't mention, you know, a longer life expectancy. He doesn't uh, mention a lower disease burden. He only discusses the the negative aspects of technology. So only the harms and not not the benefits. And then, of course, we can we can ask why does he do that? And of course, he might just have forgotten it, about it, or he could think that a lot of people know the benefits of technology and that he's concerned specifically with with the harms. Uh, but uh, but you know, as one reads his 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 manifesto more 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 carefully, one comes to see that he thinks that problems that are caused by nature that just are there as part of you know the human condition, they are not real problems. At least they're not problems in a morally relevant way, uh, since as he writes, you know, one can always accept the risks of natural life stoically, and it's just as he also writes, it's just part of how things are. Um, so he, he thinks that the harms that exist in nature uh, before we have technology are not real harms, while technological harms are what he calls imposed harms. So he, there is an asymmetry between, between uh, on the side of harm, where non-technological harm isn't really that problematic, while technological harm is very problematic. So that's the harm side, but there is also a benefit side of this. Now he thinks there are benefits to to living uh, out in nature in in a pre-industrial society, and he counts those benefits, but he doesn't count the benefits of technology. He thinks the benefits of technology are somehow tainted. They're not really good. They don't really make our lives better. They might perhaps make our lives longer, but they don't make our lives better in an ethically relevant way. So what I argue is that there's there's a very radical evaluative theory that underlies what Kaczynski writes and that uh, a lot of his a lot of the argumentative work is done by this pretty extreme asymmetry that he never really addresses he never really says this this explicitly he doesn't say that this is his evaluative theory but for his his argument to work uh, this these are the premises he needs and and I give some examples in my paper of, of why it seems that that it, those are exactly the premises that he holds yeah so maybe you could give some of those examples just to further flesh this out so the passages that seem to illustrate this double standard that he has well let's see let's see again i'm not a kaczynski scholar so i don't know his like his his work you know that well in 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 my head but um for example he he says for example it is true that primitive man is powerless against some of the things that threaten him disease for example uh, but then he, he continues, but he can accept the risk of disease stoically. So he thinks that you can be stoic when you face like natural harms or natural risks. But of course, that invites a follow up question. Why can't you be stoic in facing technological harms? I think so, maybe, I mean, just to come back on that, like to me, the fact that you can be stoic in the face of the harm doesn't mean it's less harmful. I mean, isn't that the big problem here? Yes, maybe. Of course, he, he, but if he were, to, if, if he admitted that it was equally harmful, then surely he should he should list on the pro technology side that it actually helps us avoid those those harms. But I I, I think it's I think there are several areas where it's pretty telling. So because I, I think this evaluative asymmetry can help you know explain some of the ways in which he he what he prioritizes in his areas of focus. So for example, he is very says that we should be very worried. Uh, that our lives depend on the operation of power plants that might fail. But he is not worried that pre-industrial lives depended on rain showers, for example, that might fail to come. He is worried that we might today be oppressed by bureaucracies, but he seems not to be worried that we could be oppressed by our tribes or our tribal leaders. And that he is very worried that modern office work uh, can be very tedious, but he's not worried about you know, working up in a field or, or hunting could also collecting berries, for example, or nuts could also be very tedious. So uh, it, it, it seems from the way that he focuses on these these things that that he is only willing to list things as benefits if they're natural, and he's only willing to list things as as harms or at least 
ethically relevant harms if if they are if they are technological. Is that your impression as well of his view, or do you think it holds more nuanced? Yeah, well, I I want to maybe go into that because I mean, to me, it seems like he's just guilty of a classic form of maybe motivated reasoning or special pleading on behalf of pre-industrial society. And in fact, he might also be committing what we'd call a status quo fallacy, except that his status quo is pre-industrial society. So the assumption that that is good intrinsically and then deviations from it are bad. Uh, To me, I just... It doesn't seem to me that there's anything much more to it than that, and and consequently that a lot of the reasoning is implausible because it fails to properly account for the good and the bad of both kinds of lifestyle. Yep, maybe, but it's it's you know one of the papers that I I, I discuss in, in in my own paper is a paper by Kaczynski on anarcho primitivism, and Kaczynski doesn't seem to hold the view that things were very idyllic that we had long and prosperous lives before industrialization, because some people, some anarcho-primitivists think that life was so much better in, in, in the far past, but he doesn't seem to hold that view. He seems to hold that there was a lot of disease, there was a lot of starvation, uh, it was could be pretty rough, but still that there's something about this that is better, that's more noble, because uh, you know he, 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 he several times refers to the value of struggle, because in that society we had struggle. Of course, I think motivated reasoning is part of this, but I also think it reveals, I think there's something more fundamental about that as well, namely this evaluative asymmetry that I, I, I tried to defend in my paper. I mean, there is a sense in which, it, it, it's, again, it's not that unusual a view in that I encounter it all the time in philosophy of technology, but it's something that I think is, is problematic, which is that you know people think it's worse to be oppressed or dominated by some tech company than it is to be oppressed or dominated by your neighbors, or people think it's worse to live under the arbitrary whim of a government than it is to live under the arbitrary whim of the weather, let's say. But I mean, I mean, honestly, to me, I'm not sure I understand the difference. And I think that attempts to explain the difference seem to me to be thin or a kind of special pleading. And I don't, I don't fully appreciate them ever. But that's just my take on it. Yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, Kaczynski certainly holds that view. And then there's a question of, of, you know, why does he hold this view? What is what is his actual, like, ethical theory? And what's his empirical theory? Uh, and I, it would be good to know, but sadly, he, he never makes this explicit. Though I, I, I should mention maybe that I, I've sent this paper to him. Uh, you know, he has, an e- he has a mail address, not an email, but a mail address in prison. So I've, I've sent a print copy of the paper to him and maybe he will respond. Yeah, that'd be interesting if he does. And maybe we can get you back on to chat about his uh, rebuttal or response to your, your critique. I mean, maybe one thing that draws out this asymmetry to an extent is his own life. So one of the things we mentioned earlier is that his proposed solution is violent revolution. And that is opposed to a gradual reform of existing institutions, but also it is opposed to just dropping out of current uh, the current lifestyle or current industrial society. So he himself did this. He embraced a neo-primitive lifestyle and he went to live in a cabin in the woods in Montana. And industrial society allowed him to do this, so he was free to do it. Nobody stopped him from doing it. But he ended up quite disaffected and disillusioned with that. Why did he end up disaffected and disillusioned with it? And uh, why does he not embrace that as a solution to the problem? There's, I think, several ways to... to to try to respond to that to, to that point. Because on the one hand, if he tries to save humanity, you know, it doesn't really help to live just alone in a, in, in a, in a forest cabin because then you don't stop technological civilization. But he, he has a more fundamental critique as well, where he says that, that it's true that we can just move out. We can just move to a cabin um, somewhere and just live a primitive life. But even there, you know, he says the fact that that industrial civilization allows us to do that, that that's an option that we have, uh, then that takes away the value of that choice. Uh, so I, I don't have the exact uh, uh, quote here, but he, he thinks that there's, you know, we need real struggle. And so here it is. He, he, he writes, the value of the opportunity to move into the wild is destroyed by the very fact that society gives it to them. What people need is to find or make their own opportunities. As long as the system gives them their opportunities, it still has them on a leash. To attain autonomy, they must get off the leash. So he he, he has this 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 view that that if 
it seems to me at least that if industrial industrial society does something then uh, then that is tainted and it's morally bad but even if it if it could have done something but it 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 just lets people do uh, what they want there's still is still something undignified about about this so he he thinks it's 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 in, insufficient though I, I should say when when it comes to his own life you know he lives you know now he's in a is lived for 22 years in a high security prison so in a sense he lives in a high tech dystopia uh, he lives in like a brave new world without the drugs so <laughs> I imagine how it must be for him to have, you know, these very, you know, large mechanical doors that open and close and all the, all the you know, technology in a prison setting. That must, he has really ended up, I think, in his own, in his own worst utopia, dystopia. Yeah, I mean, so there's two ironies to his life. One is his criticism of linguistics, which was actually the science that detected him in the end. And also the fact that he has ended up in the dystopian environment that he most feared in a sense <laughs> it's actually even worse because you know there's eradication or this brave new world but this isn't it's not eradication and it's not brave new world either because in brave new world there is soma so people can be happy but for him it's neither and uh, so he it, it, you know he's isolated from nature he can't be out in nature he's inside you know his prison cell most of the time and I, I wonder how that is uh, when, when you hold a view like his, and I can only imagine how how angry he is at at technological civilization for doing this to him. It would be interesting to see whether he approaches it stoically as a thing, but you know, <laughs> um, I wonder. Because of course, a prison is also a natural phenomenon in a sense; it evolved. It's something that humans made. Humans are a species, so maybe he can just be stoic. Yeah, although again, that would go very much against the general train of thought in in his work. Um, yes, but, but I mean that that kind of notion of the indignity of being given a choice to retreat from industrial society. I find that a little bit odd as well. In the sense that most views of autonomy, and maybe autonomy is a very flawed concept, and there's lots of complexity and contradictions to it. But the idea of being given choices, being given more choices, is usually considered to be consistent with autonomy so i don't i don't quite understand why being given the choice to do something is undignified or somehow undermines your autonomy and, and freedom no that that's very unclear to me as well uh, he seems to think that that in in some sense we are under the power of industrial society because perhaps because industrial society uh, could have stopped us but it chose not to so in a sense it we, we could have been on its leash but the fact that it's it lets us out is also you know, we're not free because it lets us go out, even though it could have stopped us. Uh, but it's very unclear to me why, why, why society letting us go into the forest should, should, should be wrong in any way. It's very. He it, it, it really seems to. I, I think this is an instance of probably motivated reasoning, where he just he, he seems to want everything that industrial society does to be very, very bad, uh, and I think he just goes over the top. With this one yeah i mean the one thing that in what you said there that makes it make a little bit of sense is that it could be viewed as a kind of freedom as non-domination problem here like following neo-republican philosophers like like phil pettit that even if you're given the choice if you're under the domination of the system you're a little more than a happy slave in a sense yeah. and of course and that was in a sense also the case because the, the you know the police came to his cabin and arrested him and Put him, pulled him back in. Uh, once they did what he did with the mail bombs, so so he, he could think he could be opposed to society, to industrial society existing there and having the power to uh, to to come and pull him back. It could be opposed to that, even if they don't do it. It's still you might think a problem that they're able to do so. Yeah, you're kind of living at their discretion. Your your yeah. your freedom is really an illusion because it's just at their discretion. So actually, maybe that does make a little bit of sense then. It is threatened in a way, you know. Yeah, you, yeah that, that that can make sense. Yeah, but more generally, I think this part of the discussion has drawn out the problem underlying a lot of his arguments is that he fails to properly articulate the evaluative premises or standards that are, are at work in the arguments. And actually, when, once you try to reconstruct those premises, they have some counterintuitive aspects or implications. And they those would really need to be justified or spelled out if the arguments are to be fully plausible. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, you know, my challenge to those who, to, who find Kaczynski's arguments convincing is that either they will have to defend his normative views or they will have to show how his 
practical conclusions follow even in the absence of highly revisionary uh, revisionist normative views. So, so it seems to you know it's uh, one can uh, choose here. Either one has to be, I think, empirically very called very implausible empirical views to reach the conclusion, perhaps conjoined with very plausible normative views, or one could hold uh, reasonable empirical views, uh, but then one would need a very very revisionist normative view in order to get to the conclusion that 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 Kaczynski wants us to get to. Yeah, and as you point out in your paper as well, there's a strange nihilism to his view in that he doesn't actually think that his revolutionary solution will succeed, but he seems to view it as a better thing to do than to kind of sit back and just embrace industrial society. Could you explain that idea? Or am I getting it right? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a form of, at least it's not a form of evaluative nihilism. Uh, it's not the view that he, he doesn't think that nothing is valuable. I think he believes that something is valuable, uh, but at least he seems very destructive in a sense or willing to embrace destruction. And so if by nihilism we can mean like a willingness to embrace destruction, uh, then I think he is in that sense a nihilist. Because uh, it seems to me that he doesn't really believe that this revolution will work. He says himself that 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 it's really hard to predict the future. Uh, people who use technology will always gain the upper hand. So we'll get back there into technology immediately. So I, I think there are, I think he, he has to understand that there are very slim chances that his revolutionaries will be successful and that they will also then just put down the weapons or put down the technology once they have gotten in charge. Um, but he might believe that it, it, it will work, but I, I, I doubt it. And then the question is why, why then would he embrace that, 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 Conclusion: Why would he? Why would he suggest that this is something that we could we could do? And it seems to me that the reason for this is that he believes that that both of those possible futures that he sees in the absence of the revolution, which is either eradication or brave new world, both of, of those are really really terrible. He thinks uh, so. It's so in a sense, uh, trying to to start a revolution is our our final shot, that's the final thing we can try. And I, I use this example of trying to escape a concentration camp. So if you're trapped in a concentration camp, then it makes sense to try to, to escape the camp, even if you think that the chances that you will succeed are very, very slim. And the reason for this is that, you know, you know it's terrible on the inside and on the outside, everything good is. So it's not worth living in here and out there, things can be good. So, so we should just try. Maybe it's just a 1% probability that we will succeed, but we should nevertheless try. That seems to be the kind of, the kind of reasoning that uh, lies underneath uh, Kaczynski's, Kaczynski's arguments. Yeah, it's a kind of Pascalian wager type scenario that, you know, the, the, alter- the alternative is so much worse that even if there's such a slim possibility of success, it's better to fight the good fight than to just sit back and accept what's yes. happening to you. Yeah. Yes. We could call it Kaczynski's wager or something, but I don't know if I want to give a name to it necessarily. No. And and, and of course it's, 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 well, we, we don't, don't have to go to, we don't have to go into, you know, how it's, it's different. It's, but he, it, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really curious as to what Kaczynski thinks about his like revolutionary suggestions, but it's, cause it seems pretty obvious from what he writes that this will not work. I don't know if, if you've read the anti-tech revolution, which is this monograph where he outlines like the way this should work. It just seems extremely naive. And it's it's very unclear to me why 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 Kaczynski would believe, really believe, that something like, like this could work. Yeah, I didn't uh, read it. Um, I read some previews that I could access online, but I didn't read the, the whole thing. Um, the first couple of sections are about revolution and all that. So I did read part of that, but I, I didn't get into the bits where it, it seems very naive. There's in, in my paper, there's a link to an online copy of the the anti-tech revolution as well. Oh, okay. Is, I didn't realize there was a, a free online version of that. Um, yeah. Okay, um, maybe just two issues to f- finish up on. We mentioned this already to some extent. I gave examples, but one of the things that you do in your paper is you give examples of contemporary philosophers, people like Nick Bostrom and Julian Savulescu, who, who have articulated arguments that are very similar to Kaczynski but reach very different conclusions. Maybe you could explain what those arguments are and why they reach different conclusions now uh well when it comes to nick bostrom i I guess where where he and and kaczynski would agree uh is that 
uh, there's a technological arms race. Uh, and technolo technology is extremely hard to predict, hard to control. And uh, technology can can have really devastating consequences. And we should really struggle, uh, or we should really strive, uh, Bostrom would say, to try to create a good future because it, or to, to try to handle technology well, uh, because it's so powerful and it's so hard to control. And and here he and Kaczynski seem to seem to agree. Uh, now, when it comes to uh, Savalescu and Ingmar Persson, they argue in this book called Unfit for the Future and in many papers for what they call moral enhancement, which is like the use of biotechnologies to make us morally better. So they, they think that it's really dangerous to live in a world like this, uh, where terrorists uh, like Kaczynski, for example, could potentially kill you know, millions and millions of people with viruses, for example, or other kinds of high-tech weapons. Uh, so they think we're unfit for the future because, you know, our moral psychologies are evolved to, to, to function in much simpler, much smaller societies than the society that we live in. So there's this tension, there's incompatibility between our moral psychologies and our, and, and our practical realities. So in that sense, there's, always, there's also a similarity in their, their view. But uh, there are, you know, important differences uh, uh, as well. And I think one of those differences, you know, one is the evaluative view. You know, they uh, neither Bostrom nor Sevalescu think that 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 everything technological is bad and everything non-technological is good. Uh, so that that's like an evaluative difference that's really important. But the other concerns the range of possible futures because for Kaczynski it's either eradication or brave new world. While for both Bostrom and Savalescu, there are lots of possible futures, including some futures that are very good, where we live very long, very happy, very enjoyable lives in peace and prosperity. So those are, they would think, that the kinds of the the outcomes that we should pursue and try to that we should try to realize. It's not just the two options that that Kaczynski uh, mentions. So I think there's the difference lies in the evaluative theories that they hold. And in their views of what are the possible futures to aim for. Yeah, and also then the the, the solutions that they advocate to the problems that they identify are, are quite yeah. different. Sure, but that's that. Yeah. I, uh, but I think that's in large part because of the uh, because of the they don't have the evaluative asymmetry. Asymmetry. They don't have only two possible futures. Of course, there's possibly you know a third premise that we shouldn't use violence, uh, uh, pr presumably to a much larger extent than than Kaczynski. Yeah. Uh, both Bostrom and 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 Sevlesko accept that. Yeah, so the kinds of solutions that they envisage are constrained to some extent because of their evaluative premises, some of yes. which are clearly articulated or stated, and some of which are, are maybe implicit because it's it, they're too obvious to state, perhaps. Yes, but uh, I mean, are their solutions credible? I, I mean, I don't want to actually go into a debate about their arguments necessarily because that would take a whole other podcast, but. I mean, there's a sense to me anyway in which their proposed solutions have a kind of futility to them as well or uncertainty or they're very unlikely to work in the way that they envisage. So they might be in a similar camp to Kaczynski in the unrealism of their solutions. I don't know if that's entirely fair, but I mean, to use the Savalescu and Pearson example, the idea that we would have wide-scale moral enhancement of the kind that they envisage or think is necessary seems to me relatively implausible based on the kinds of technology that we currently have. Maybe that's me being naive about the possibilities. And also maybe to, in Bostrom's case, you know, having a global solution to the problem of friendly AI also strikes me as be, be being politically unrealistic. But I think maybe they're both sensitive to those problems more than Kaczynski is, but there is still a, a, a concern about how practically feasible those solutions are. Well, I, I think we will always face those kinds of problems when we discuss, you know, what should we do to create, you know, a good far future? It's, you know, an enormous uncertainty, but we'll have to ask ourselves you know, to ask, you know, what are the, are the the suggestions that are most likely to work? You know, what should we, what, what might we, what might we try? And even though I share your worries about what Bostrom and Savalescu suggest, I think it's pretty clear that their solutions are both a lot better than Kaczynski's. Yeah, and I, as I say, they're both much more sensitive to the practical hurdles, particularly Bolstrom, who writes a lot about you know how to yes. address those practical difficulties. Just then, a final question to wrap up the conversation. You've written this critique now of Kaczynski's work. 
Where do you think the debate should go from here? Do we ignore Kaczynski's arguments from here on out, or should there be further academic debate about them? Should there be a whole literature dedicated to these ideas, or what should happen? Well, I I, I don't have a, like a clear cut solution for you know what should happen now. I don't think there is grounds for you know a whole area of Kaczynski or such. Uh, I. I've, I think this will probably be my my, my first and my, my my also my final paper about about Kaczynski. But I I, I think if 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 it's going to do some good, maybe maybe it could do some good in 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 like building some kind of a bridge between those who are very opposed to technology, uh, and those who are transhumanists or who are in favor of human enhancement, and so that those two sides of that debate which seem very very opposed to each other can actually come to see that, that they share some of the same worries about technology, that technology is actually very potentially really, really dangerous, that it's very hard to control the development of technology, that there's an arms race in technology, that we can, up, can end up in a really, really bad, bad future. Uh, and I, so I, if anything, I, I hope that the paper can help people on those very opposed sides to see that they, yeah, that they, that they share some premises. What do you think? Yeah, so in a sense, the value of debating these extreme positions is that it might actually draw people into a more reasonable middle ground where we could recognize the strengths and weaknesses of both ideologies, in a sense. Yeah, it, 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 I would be very happy if people could read this and they could see that if you share Kaczynski's worries about the development of technology, then your conclusion should be something along that of Nick Bostrop's. I think I'd be very happy if people, you know, go from being Kaczynskiites to being transhumanists. I think that would be a, I, that that would be a good development. Skeptical transhumanists of some sort. Skeptical yeah. transhumanists, but I, I think uh, you know it's interesting that that you know I think techno optimism and transhumanism are two rather different views. So techno optimism is the view that that things will probably go well or things will probably go very well. But that's not the same thing as transhumanism. I think transhumanism is the view that there are at least some futures that are really, really good, and we should try to strive towards creating a very, very good world, and that that is possible. But I think it's compatible with transhumanism to believe that the vast majority of possible futures are actually pretty bleak, uh, and that things can go very, very badly. Uh, but as, so I, I, I really hope that you call it like skeptical transhumanism. I, I think all reasonable transhumanisms are in fact skeptical transhumanisms and that it's really, really important to, well, then distinguish between transhumanism on the one hand and techno-optimism on the other. Yeah, and I think that's actually a pretty good place to wrap up the conversation with this plea for a skeptical and reasonable transhumanism as opposed to a, a techno-optimism. Yes. Um, thank you for joining me for this conversation, Ole Martin. Thank you very much for having me here.